Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. And today is episode 43. Uh, today's topic, Brian, Teddy, Teddy with us? Yeah. Ted? Uh, the future of digital health, Brian, seems to be pretty colorful and pretty female. Thank God. Why isn't everything? <laughs> uh uh, but seriously, we're digging into the future of digital health, which is uh, going better in some places than others. But man, it's it's pretty fucking cool. Uh, our guests, plural today. Two. Uh, yep, that that's what plural means. Got it. Coming at you from way across the pond, uh, Doctor Indra Joshi uh, and almost Doctor Maxine McIntosh. What this is reminiscent of episode one of this podcast. I believe we had Doctor Heidi Stelter and almost Doctor and Christensen and Christensen. Yeah, yeah. we got to check and see how that's going. Pretty awesome. Uh, anyways, Doctor Joshi is the clinical lead for NHS England's digital experience program with an E at the end. Uh, she's an and she's an expedition medic. Uh, she's a mom and she's the clinical clinical director. Oof, pulling it together today of One this. Health Tech, a network these ladies co-founded, which champions and supports underrepresented groups in health innovations, primarily ladies. Uh, Maxine is pursuing her PhD in neuroinformatics at the Alan Turing Institute. So she's a slouch. (laughs) Uh, Where she's working on the intersection of data science and dementia. And she's also, as mentioned, a founding member of One Health Tech. Mm -hmm. Brian, you got any experience with dementia? Anybody in your family? No, actually, not no. Nobody like in my super close knit, uh, like you know, small group. What do you call that? What's it called when it's this nuclear family? Nuclear family. Yeah, nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. <laughs> no, please don't do that. Nuclear family. I'm just joking. Um. Well, let me tell you. All my grandparents had it. Yeah. It's the darkness. Uh, it is fucked up for everybody. Yeah, I, I can't. And uh, obviously, she's she's got a long way to go. And there's a number of wonderful people people working on it. I'm clearly now just cheering for her. Yeah. But man, if somebody could start to make some progress on that, yeah, wouldn't that be incredible? We've we've shared some uh, some stuff in the newsletter and just in general uh, across our social platform uh, about certain progresses that are made and stuff. It's very exciting to yeah. think that it could one day not be a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, let's uh, yeah, these women are looking forward and doing everything they can to uh, to raise up the next generation of lady mm-hmm. scientists. Mm-hmm. And uh, health professionals, and uh, we uh, dig into digital health with them, uh, where mm-hmm. the UK has succeeded and the US has failed, and why. Mm-hmm. Um, say the word blockchain once, right? Which is how many times Teddy barked. <laughs> yeah, Teddy did bark once. During it was very strange. Just strange. Uh, and we made fun of you for having two coffees. Yeah, I don't really think that you made fun of me. You just said, and "It's enough." Let the okay. everybody knows it's yep, enough. It is. Yeah, Teddy barked. That was really weird. Uh, doesn't bark when he has to go out. Check. Doesn't bark when there's an earthquake. We watched that go down. Didn't even wake up. Nope. So no idea why. He was literally just sitting here quietly, comfortably, and barked. Yep. Anyways, on Weird. that note, uh, let's go do it. Let's talk to the ladies. Okay. Our guests today are Indra Joshi and Maxine McIntosh. And together, we're going to discuss the future of uh, digital health, uh, which seems to be pretty colorful and female. Uh, and this is another conversation uh, in our fun series, uh, Should White Guys Go Away Forever? Indra and Maxine, <laughs> welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks very much for having us. That's we a are, really good name. <laughs> <laughs> we're very, very happy to have you here. So let uh, let us get going with just a quick introduction of you. Who um, who are you and, and what do you ladies do? Indra, go for it. So, hi, guys. Uh, my name is Indra. As said, 
I am a doctor by trade, so I work in what we call an accident and emergency, but I think what you guys call is the ER, the emergency room. That's my sort of by night profession when I'm Batgirl. And during the day, I work for our central government body called NHS England, overseeing some of the digital health programs. Okay, very cool. Awesome. Nothing like uh, having some free time on your schedule. Very impressive. <laughs> Thank you for for translating the uh, words for us from, mm-hmm. from British to English. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maxine, what's your story? Uh, so my name is Maxine. Uh, I am currently doing a, a PhD at uh, somewhere called the Alan Turing Institute, which is the UK's National Data Science and AI Institute. And my work looks at uh, mining medical records and probably the most analogous system would probably be Kaiser Permanente's, um, but mining medical records for early predictors for dementia. And then one thing that Indra and I are are both involved in is we uh, helped set up One Health Tech, which is a community that looks to get more women and people from diverse backgrounds working in digital health and health technology. Awesome. That's very cool. And and how, uh, how long have you guys had that organization going? Well, so it's, it's, it's actually it's stemmed from an American organization actually called Health Tech Women. And um, uh, we started it maybe almost three years ago now. Yeah. But because it grew so quickly um, in such a short period of time in the UK and because of the differences in, in basically culture around healthcare between the US and the UK, we kind of had to, to consciously uncouple in a kind of Gwyneth Paltrow, Chris Martin kind of way. <laughs> nice. Um, so we're still very good friends with our counterparts, health tech women, but uh, we kind of had to go off a bit on our own. So it's, yeah, it's about three years. Okay, very cool. Excellent. All right. So uh, uh, ladies, we are huge believers in asking questions over here, um, specifically action-oriented questions. And uh, we are in a time for action. Uh, so we have a lot of them. Uh, so we're going to uh, sort of set up some context for the conversation today and then get into some uh, some whys and hows and uh, what ifs and, uh, and what's and get, uh, get some uh, answers out of you that can uh, uh, motivate our listeners to take action, if that sounds good to you. Exciting. Action yes, is my very, goal for sure. Very, so I'm very excited. Very exciting. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, we do start with one Important question. Um, in, instead of saying, uh, if you could both just tell us your entire life story, we like to ask, and if you could uh, answer individually, um, that would be great, unless you have some pre-scripted together answer. Yeah. Why are you vital to the survival of the species? You're asking British people to be sort of narcissistic megalomaniacs. Yeah, 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 that's, right. quite, that's quite a challenge. Oh, I'm very aware. <laughs> I worked, I worked for the Financial Times over there for a long time. Believe me, I can't even imagine asking this to some of my newsroom friends. Oh, gosh. So quite hilariously, I did some media training this morning. And one of the things the guy told me was you should always have three messages to bring across whenever you give an answer and give it in really simple, plain English. So. Mm-hmm. Very simply, we need doctors to save lives. Very simply, one reason for existence. We need to broaden the argument. Whenever, and I think this isn't a new argument, we are bored of listening to white men talk about things that don't always apply to just that part of society. We Mm -hmm. need to make it a bit more diverse. And the third thing is let's change this biomedical model Let's turn it on its head, give more control to patients, more control to citizens, to users, give them the information they need. There's no need to have this traditional biomedical model. And I think between Maxine and I, 
we're here to change that. And that's our reason for existence. Certainly mine. Maxine, what about you? Yeah, actually, I mean, you, you, you've sort of answered 90% of that for me. For you. <laughs> Thank God. Um, <laughs> I guess the only thing I would I would add is that, uh, you know, one thing that Indra and I talk about quite a lot is it is hard to find people who are really sitting at the intersection of data and AI mm-hmm. and the clinical uh, biomedical world. You know, I'm, though I'm not a doctor by background, I did neuroscience. Um, you know, sitting in that gap is, is, is quite challenging and there aren't a lot of people. So, um, I am vital because uh, I am trying to carve this path um, and the group that is carving this path is not very big. Um, so we're sticking at it in a, in, a, in, a, in, a sort of, in a wee group with a lot of tenacity. I love that. That's great. Uh, two great answers always come right after that initial like oh this is this is a narcissistic ego to egoist question uh, right. question but then great really great answers come out i know and I, you said you had uh press training this morning so you've what had 12 hours to to prep those answers that's impressive <laughs> yeah by the way indra crushing it so far yeah right it's going <laughs> it's going so great thank you all right so look just a, a little context we won't get too in the weeds here for everybody um, every, well, maybe not. I guess this is part of the problem. I was going to say everyone's been to the doctor, but that's not true in <laughs> not America because you can't. Uh, in the past decade, we've all been told, uh, both on, on the on the medical profession side and uh, uh, on the consumer side, a little more out of our control, that we're we're switching over to electronic health records, and and simultaneously, uh, we were promised so many benefits of this this long, complicated difficult but beneficial switch, right? Uh, huge data, varied data, um, the potential to put algorithms to use on that data, um, personalized medicine of variety of sorts, uh, fewer unfortunate hospital errors, so cleaner and clearer communications um, in, uh, among hospitals, uh, pandemic predictions, cost benefits, all these things. But there have been many institutionalized and, and understandable in some ways growing pains ranging from uh, as simple as the poor handwriting on on past records to uh, a complete lack of standardization across forms, even even still on some of the newer records, uh, to spotty translations, to privacy and ethics questions, uh, to implementation costs. But we are seeing some progress in a variety of places, and and we are starting to able to be able to look uh, forward to some of the opportunities we might be able to have uh, from from this long process. So. Um, to, to dig into our, our topic here, again, the future uh, of digital health isn't uh, just driven by white males and the data set isn't just white males for once, or it shouldn't be, or we're working towards that, or, or at least we're becoming more aware of our deficiencies, whether they're programmed or not. But I, w- I want to dig into the fundamentals. I imagine the state of things is quite different between the US and the UK because your healthcare system, for example, isn't horrifically broken. But I do imagine there are some similarities. Where are we and why are where we are and and what's the next step? So maybe, Indra, do you want to give a kind of policy overview and then uh, I'll go into kind of the secondary use stuff because that that is your job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think if we just take a step back, um, people talk about digital health. And I think when we're in that space, we should always say, what do we mean by digital health? Because we don't really say by digital health. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't really call it digital travel, do we? We don't really call it digital banking. I mean, some people (laughs) call it online banking, but it is it's just banking, isn't it? And it's got a digital interface. So I think we still are slightly stuck in the space of calling it digital health. 
versus just it's healthcare and it may or may not have a digital interface. And when you talk about it that way, actually what we've been doing today, we've actually been doing for quite a few years. I mean, the UK is one of the the leading and probably the first countries to have all of our primary care. So when you go and see your family doctor or your what we call our general practitioner, all of your care records in a digital format, so be it in an electronic mm-hmm. health record or on, a, or on some kind of computer system. And we've mm-hmm. been doing that for quite a few number of years. And now what we need to do is bring the rest of the healthcare system along on that journey. So when we talk about secondary care, we normally mean things in a hospital or in a specialised unit. And then we also talk about community care and social care. So those are people who work within a community in a care home setting or or, or in a practice that may not necessarily be within the, the general practice. And we're making that transition. In the UK, we've been doing that transition quite well. We have um, quite a number of what we call global digital exemplars, where we have given a sum of money to hospitals and what we call NHS trusts to say, here's some money to really get you on that ball of getting more of your services in a digital format, in a digital mm-hmm. way. Now, that might be electronic health records, but it's also a number of other tools and devices that people can use. So actually that they are giving not just their workforce, but also the people who come into that hospital the best possible treatment. Can you give some examples of what those tools might be? Uh, So you could think about some decision tools. So we think about, uh, traditionally we think about an electronic health record. That's what we mean by digital. But actually, when you go into the health, uh, when you go into hospital, if you've broken your arm, you come and see me as a doctor. But actually, before you come and see me, you see a nurse who may or may not take what we call observations. So she measures your heart rate, your respiratory rate, your blood pressure. All of these things can be put, uh, can be done digitally. So you can do them with a camera on a phone. There's really great tools out there that use some whizzy algorithms at the back. So literally, you just stare (laughs) at a camera and it does all of that for you. Is that the technical term, whizzy algorithm? Literally, I love saying whizzy algorithms. As I say, Perfect. I'm the doctor. I can save yep, a life. Yep, I don't really understand want. the data. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but, you know, and people like that. And I think that that makes life a lot easier. It means you as an individual can actually, just as when you go into McDonald's and you say, oh, okay, I want this order and this order, and you do it on that big screen. Actually, if we give people a bit of privacy, because obviously health, we're very uh, protected about what what information is shared and not shared. You can go up to a very similar tool, and we've got some great examples of that here in London and the south of London, where you can go up in the emergency department, you yourself fill out what's wrong with you, you have a tool like a machine that takes your blood pressure and your reading. Now, wow. currently, because all of these things are being validated, you will still see a nurse who will just validate all of that with you. And all of that information is then sent to the doctor behind the door, so to say, to say, you know, do we need to see this person straight away? Or actually, can this person be seen in a different place, like by a pharmacist, or can they be treated remotely by one of the nurses? So, you know, it's about thinking about things slightly differently from the traditional model we've always thought about. And that's what I mean by it's not just always about an electronic health record. There are lots of other things. And I mean, I can go on forever and talk about some of the apps and wearable technologies that's out there, some of the VR technology, virtual reality technology. But I'm going to take a pause. And Maxine, maybe you want to jump in with some proper data science stuff. Can I, can I just ask one question also? <laughs> Sorry. Is, um, does it seem like this transition is a uh, top priority in, in hospitals in, in the UK? Is it happening efficiently and quickly or is it so, not? 
what I would say is change management is always difficult. People quite often say technology is the answer to everything, but it doesn't matter what industry you are in. Technology can help, but actually change management in itself mm. can be quite difficult. And to do change management, actually, you need very good leadership. And one right. of the top priorities we have currently uh, within, within our plans are to say, how do we encourage this leadership in this digital age? So right. we have something called the Digital Academy, which is bringing through a suite of professionals to say, be leaders of this digital age. So it's about bringing people on that journey with you. Um, and it is a slow journey, but we are making progress. Awesome. Very must, good to hear. Must be nice. Maxine? Yeah, well, I was just, I was going to, um, when Indra was talking about a lot of the things that happen uh, from a patient's perspective, often behind within the confines of, say, a hospital. And so many people, um, I suspect if you were to take a, a kind of random sample from the population, wouldn't think that the NHS was very digital. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's um, currently kind of being piloted at the moment with full release quite soon uh, is uh, an NHS app, which will allow people um, on their smartphones to be, it's a symptom checker, book and manage GP appointments, order repeat prescriptions, uh, look at their GP medical record, um, registers organ donors. So there's all sorts of um, kind of public facing consumer-esque uh, interactions now that are going to start to be facilitated by mm. um, this NHS app, of which there are a number of different organisations already doing that um, within the NHS, you know, kind of private commercial organisations, but uh, you know, they have often struggled to get into the system and it's taken them a very long time to get, it, to get adoption. And, you know, one thing that's very timely for this call was that our new Secretary of State um, recently uh, just announced this kind of his vision for the future of the NHS. And to kind of summarise a 12,000 word document in a sentence, um, it, 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 the, the gist was, you know, we want to create the marketplace through better use of standards upon which the market will provide the solution. And so that's, I think, quite an interesting approach by saying, you know, we want to make sure that the infrastructure is there so sure. that it can accommodate some of the best innovations. Sure. And it, it does seem to make sense, though, right? It's like, hold on, let us get our shit together and standardize everything and and, and make sure the infrastructure is there. And then, you know, uh, everybody's always talking about how the, you know, the market will provide the end benefits. But, but if you just have at it randomly uh, without everything in place first, it's, it's going to be pretty difficult. Or you yeah. could just call that America. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true okay so 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 a quite kind of boring but good example of that is something called the nhs number so each person um is identifiable identified by their nhs number and this allows even though in the uk people think we're, we're on one organization you know the nhs is also extremely fragmented but the fact that everyone has a unique patient identifier means that technically all records around that patient could be linked. Um, mm. So that means that I have access to the kind of records that I have in order to do my research. So my my database that I'm looking at has 16 million patients in the UK linked between primary care, secondary care and death data. And that's all because we have this unique patient identifier. And so that's that's a kind of you know, example of a standardization in some respect. And that has facilitated a huge amount of incredible work done to date. So I think even though that's not a very kind of sex and exciting thing it's you know that that's a really good example if you get that right you can do population health at scale oh no it's a it's a fundamental piece of the puzzle i mean and if you if you jump ahead and i don't know if we'll have time or if you guys are interested in talking about that health, there's been talk of moving medical records onto the blockchain um but uh. but you know 
it seems like the U.S. is so far from that. I mean, just the the, the pushback a politician or or uh, or or medical representative would get in any way from even suggesting that everybody should have a number linked to them, even though we already have that with our social security numbers, uh, is just you know it it seems far fetched, which is frustrating because it does it it it's a fundamental building block for everything else. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. But it goes back to back to the point that Maxine was talking about, which is you know to to allow these things to flourish, a you've got to have some standards. You you know when you build a house. What do you need? You need to have your bricks, don't you? You need to have your mortar. You need to know, and this is how I put them together. But how you decorate that house, where you actually put that house is totally your choice. Where you put it might be a little bit uh, limited onto space. But what we're trying to say is to do all of these things, to do this, what I would still, and I would call blockchain slightly whizzy technology, is you need there, the fun- there that term is again. <laughs> you really need the fundamentals in place. And I think a lot of things have developed quite rapidly and we've not really had the chance to think about those fundamentals in the health and care, especially in the data space. And now we're getting that opportunity to actually lay down some ground rules, for want of a better word, so that we can start doing this stuff effectively at scale. So you, you, you guys sound like you're actually uh, op- optimistic about the, about the next uh, era of, of digital health in the UK. I mean, personally, I do feel very optimistic. Uh, the I have a huge amount of faith, and then personally, in the new team that's come on. Um, so uh, I'm specifically thinking about Matt Hancock here and Hadley Beeman, who's his technology advisor. Uh, and the reason why I mention her is because she is like a proper open standards web architecture nerd. And <laughs> I think having someone like that. It, so close to decision making in health and technology can only be a good thing. So, you know, I am I'm feeling very positive reading uh, the Secretary of State's latest new vision. It's it's very unsexy. I did a control F on the document to find how many times I could read AI in the document, and it only came up <laughs> and it only came up four times, and that filled me with joy because it just proved that the document was not about the sexy stuff. It was about getting the basics right. Sure, sure. The sexy stuff is fun, but if if there's no uh, if there's no foundation to your house, you're in deep shit. Yeah, yeah. Or it's just Facebook. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts, and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts, so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be, and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. Hey, guys. uh, It's Brian. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I have a quick favor for you while Quinn is eating his iced maple scone. Every podcast you listen to begs for a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and here's why. Okay, not everybody listens on Apple Podcasts, of course, like you might not be doing right now, 
but most of our listeners do like 70% and most all podcast listeners are on Apple Podcasts. And the top charts are a huge source of even more new listeners. We like new listeners. So here's the deal. Uh, some weird combination of downloads and ratings and reviews and or algorithm, I think that's a word, drive up those top charts. And, and we like being on those top charts and getting new listeners. So we, we just need your help. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts right this second, it's really easy. It'll take between five and 10 seconds uh, max, okay? Uh, if you're staring at the episode screen, uh, swipe down. Down at the bottom, there's a little library button. You're going to need to tap that and then find our show and then tap that. Scroll down to ratings and reviews and and hit the little buttons. There's little stars. And then there's a little thing that says write a review. You just click that and then you write a review. Do it right now. We'll wait. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you for doing that. We love you so much. Okay, back to the episode. There have been some stories recently uh, we've talked about a little bit here about uh, health records and uh, genomic studies. How how we have more or less been ignoring sort of a, a variety of races, which surprises no yeah, one. The shocker. same with a lot of these ancestry or DNA tests and things like that. How, of course, you know, the way data works is uh, the more data, the more varied data you have, the more complete picture you have. But it seems like at least right now for, for some of these quote unquote big data uh, projects um, that we have a relatively incomplete picture of health or at least a very white one. Do you guys have any sort of perspective on that as you're starting to move forward or, or working on things like dementia? What, what are the benefits of having a greater variety of data and how can we better approach those things to incentivize people to participate? Yeah, I mean, the, it's in the UK, we are 81% um, Caucasian, but uh, in London, that's, um, it's far lower. It's, it's less than 50%, in fact. Hmm. Um, and so even within the country, we have huge regional differences. And you know, as we all know, clinical trials have always, by and large, recruited um, slightly more affluent and or scientifically literate people who have an incentive to be involved if they're not being paid and are often white. The good thing about kind of the work that I do is it uses routinely collected data. Um, so that's a pretty good and accurate cross-section of society. And, and most of the population is registered with their, with, with their family doctor. Apologies for interrupting. Could you just define routinely collected data for us? So data that's collected is a byproduct of your interaction with the health system. So every time you have a touch point with the NHS that's digital in some format, that will be recorded. So in my case, every time you go and see your GP, that will be recorded in your electronic mm-hmm. health record which then gets anonymized, which is then something that I can have a look at. And where did the where did the permissions level happen with that as far as, I mean, obviously, the NHS has been collecting data for forever every time you go to the, the GP or, like you said, interact with a, a nurse or, or a hospital. But at what point, because this is a big thing we'll, we are dealing with and we'll have to deal with here is the point of permissions of, oh, yes, you can use this for... Uh, this this specific project or in perpetuity, uh, you know, I'm just curious because I know you guys had a Google thing over there, didn't you, with the NHS, a little issue come up? So so that's so that, that that's sort of slightly separate. Um, so okay. the, uh, if we're going back to the, the, the kind of first question, so uh, in this case, different databases and different data sets are collected at different levels. And there, there was a scandal that happened a few years ago in the UK called Care.Data, which was a good example about how not to do PR when it looks at population health. But to, to tell you what happens now, and certainly in a lot of the databases I look at, uh, GP practices, so your, your family doctor's practices, will opt in to have that the data from that practice anonymized and put into a centralized database. Okay. Um, 
the law recently changed, but now to not be too boring about opting in and opting out, um, you as an individual um, can opt out of that data being shared, um, but it's always anonymized. And actually, the opt out rates are very, very low. But it's really great oh, to be wow. in, a, in a country where it, the default is that your data will be used for secondary uses. Oh, so it, it changed from opt in to opt out. No, it, it, it was always it, you know, it, it, it just the nature of the opt out changed a bit, but okay. it, but um, it's it has always been the kind of default is uh, that if it's anonymized, um, that there would the explicit consent is not required. Sure, that seems like a smart thing to bring here. <laughs> well, it is because it, but the moment because the moment you start doing case by case permissions, um, whilst that might be technically better, um, there is no way you can do population health. If you're doing case by case permissions, sure, and and we obviously have a very wide and varied population here that's yeah. changing quickly, which a lot of folks aren't happy about. No, yeah, sure. I was just going to say, you know, go back to the original point about who, who's being who's missing in electronic health records. You know, whilst I have a very accurate swathe of the population, you know, we're going to be missing probably homeless people definitely. Mm -hmm. um, ethnicity right. in my data set is coded with a degree of about eighty percent missingness. So uh, it, it, that the whilst it's a byproduct of routine activity, it is also not not perfect by any means. Sure, but it's certainly a standard to yes, look towards something. And can I? And I think that really helps me with, uh, it's almost like we planned this, but um, so one of the programs we're doing within uh, the NHS is something called Widening Digital Participation. And what that program does is it goes around to areas of need who may not even know or have the tools for doing some of this work digitally. So Maxine talked about homeless people. These are vulnerable people within society. You might have homeless people, you might have people who's English isn't their first language, mm. or you could have a community who just don't have a phone or a laptop or a, uh, an iPad. And some of, the, some of these things we take for granted, but actually you know, quite a lot of communities out there don't have these things, or they may have one phone that they share amongst themselves right. in a family. And what we've tried to do with this program is actually to go out to these communities and develop something called a digital champion, which is basically a person who for want of a better word, translates between what your problem is and how could you try and solve that problem digitally in the healthcare space. And this is, for me, I think this is the fundamental of really getting all those different data sets together because actually physically you have to go out to those hard-to-reach communities. Physically you have to bring them on that journey with you and you do have to hold their hand in certain cases and say, look, we know you might not feel comfortable doing this, but actually it's vital that we get your information this way as well. So for the reasons Maxine has explained, that we can get that much more broad ranging data set. And, and you know, I, I imagine that just selling it as, hey, listen, this is going to help us predict and diagnose disease for the betterment of, of the whole system isn't necessarily the strongest selling. I mean, I imagine you have to, to to incentivize them in some way on a personal level as well. This is how this is going to help you sp right. specifically. Uh, how how do you guys sell that? I'm 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 curious. Again, as you know, we look to we still are trying to get everyone to sign up, and and we have penalties and incentives and things like that. And that's just to participate in the system at all. So I, I'm just curious about any any best practices, really, any incentives you've got that have gotten people to participate in that uh, on a personal level. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's probably two examples. One of them is what not to do, and one of them is a, is is something that a, a group in the UK is, is looking to to kind of increase the dialogue. So starting with what not to do, and this is what I alluded to earlier, um, something called Care.Data happened a couple of years ago in the UK. And to kind of really summarise it, it was a, a big initiative to uh, effectively pool almost all of the data in England into basically one pot uh, upon which you could do lots of interesting analytics around it. And part of that would obviously be involved interacting with third parties, for example, commercial organisations or pharmaceutical companies looking to do research to you know, find cures to XYZ disease. There's a lot of reasons why people felt that it failed. But one of the big ones was that when that was being decided, it was communicated to the public in a way that was not seen to be effective. And one of the mediums by which it was communicated was leaflets in people's doors that was kind of explaining what it really involves. And part of the failure of it was attributed to um, a kind of a slew of rather unhelpful headlines in a, in a big British tabloid, um, basically saying the NHS is selling your data to you know evil drug companies, you know, pull out. Whoa. And it was significantly more multifactorial than that, but uh, the, the the repercussions of the fact that that was a very badly communicated initiative means that now a few years on, after a few stop and start iterations, that whole pro- program has been pulled. Um, and you know, I I think the repercussions of that will be that it, you know potentially put the UK back up to a decade in terms of the work it can do in population health. Um, so that's an example of kind of like what not to do when you're moving lots of people's data around and wanting to plan plans initiatives. Don't step ten years in it backwards. <laughs> Got it. Right. Um, and so as a result of that, there's been some kind of interesting new initiatives that have come up, and one of them ones that I'd like to kind of raise is one called Understanding Patient Data, which is um, an initiative that was set up um, mostly out of the Wellcome Trust in London. And and that really is about giving kind of incredible case studies about people who uh, donated their data or who are actively engaging in data sharing and the the positive benefits that can have or the fact or just all the base or the basic fact that, you know, if by, by your data being shared somewhere, someone else. You might not know them. You might never, ever even know they exist. Someone somewhere else is going to be able to benefit because their lives will be saved in some way by the fact that you shared your data. And they're just trying to create that discussion and also work out where the um, ignorance is, where the fears, where the expectations lie, because it's overlaying all of this in terms of the communication issue is that in the UK, we have a very, very confusing relationship and understanding of what the NHS is, how it interacts with with external organizations and what it does with data and the expectations and presumptions are all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it's not good enough just to say by you, by someone using your data, their lives are going to be saved because the misunderstandings are way further upstream often. And so all understanding right. patient data is really looking to kind of start that dialogue. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that's one angle to look at it. And the other angle to look at it is how do you create digital journeys with people? How do you start those off? So in this in the UK, we have something called a red book. So every time a child is born, they get given a physical book that's red. That's why it's called a red book. And in it, you can start measuring things. So you've got like your WHO growth oh. charts. You've got your vaccines that you've taken. You've got your um, milestones, your developmental milestones. So like, are you walking? Are you talking? Those kinds of things. And actually what we're trying to do here is we've got a couple of sites where we've put that red book online or we've given it a digital format. So that Mm -hmm. child from birth starts a digital journey of 
sharing their data, putting it in, putting in a way that is readable across multiple formats. So actually for them, it becomes business as usual. This isn't something to be scared or worried about. This is something that is going in. And it's also for the parent to say, well, actually, we should be doing this stuff. This should be business as usual. How long have Red Books been passed out? Do you do you ladies have Red Books? Uh, I don't have a baby. <laughs> yeah. from, but I mean, I mean, from, from when, when you, you were from born, when you were a baby. You should do. I wasn't. Con- I wasn't. I wasn't conscious to know what my milestones were. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was, so I, I mean, think they've been around for the sort of early eighties. Yeah, but I, I wasn't okay. born in the UK, so I personally don't have a red book. Got but it, um, I was in a meeting yesterday, and we discovered through sort of trial and error that the red books have probably been around for about thirty, maybe between 20 and 30 years. Fascinating. Yeah. But Fascinating. The, 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 the issue about this, the, the kind of communication of it is that also the negative headlines are just so much more clickable and readable than a positive headline. Right. Um, so when, when adjusted for the um, type of newspaper and negative headlines on data in the NHS had eightfold higher click rates than positive headlines, you know, like Gary shared his data and therefore Terry got cured from cancer, kind of positive headlines. Um, and it is just because a negative headline, a cybersecurity attack, you know, that sort of thing is just a bit more exciting to read than, you know, someone oh, yeah. shared their data. I'm sure the look same is true here. Yeah. Everybody wants to know the bad shit that's going on, it seems. It's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, hey, Intro, what are the uh, what are the biggest obstacles that you run into um, in, in, in your personal interactions, uh, you know, as a day-to-day doctor? Anything that's recurring? And then how do you, and how do you deal with it? There are a few things that are recurring, and I think a lot of those I hope will change over the next few years. But some of them are some really basic fundamentals, like turning the computer on, and it takes about four or five minutes just to switch on. So this is a real mm-hmm. infrastructure problem. That's right. not the same across every hospital, but in my particular hospital where I work, it does take a long time. And then the other thing that is very frustrating, that is a common frustration for all of us, is the number of logins you have. So I have a login for, say, my A&E system. I then have another login for the prescription system. I have a third login Mm. for the x-ray system. And all these multiple systems, as a user, it can be quite frustrating. So not quite as unified as advertised or assumed? Not quite. And I think this is common across the globe. I don't think this is a unique problem. This is quite common across the globe. Sure. It's it's interesting, you know. We're lucky here, Brian. I don't know what hospital did you go to, Brian. Have you ever been to a hospital here? Uh, uh no. Okay. Uh, you know, we're we're part of. The, I, I am, I guess. Uh, you know, I mostly spend most of my most of my time. I had my children at the Cedar Sinai Medical Complex, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, they've always taken good care, but it is, you know, it's almost like a, a, a mini Mayo Clinic in the sense that the, you know, there's so many different pieces to it. Um, but you know, they set up. They they were big on the turning over the electronic health records the past few years. They partnered with, I believe, Epic built their system. So now even when a doctor has a private practice, uh, but they're affiliated with Cedars, they have the same login and they can, uh, you know, access oh, the records. Great. It is, you know, but it's interesting, you know, you go anywhere else and, and no one else has has access to those records and we still have to fax them back and forth. But there is, there is some interesting third party participation on the horizon you know i think what uh, and it probably gets more press than deserves but at the same time I, I do think is interesting is what apple is starting to do with health on the iphones and such so they've built uh in into their health app their stock health app 
there's a medical record part now. And if your hospital system participates and has, has obviously they need to go through their own in, internal process to upgrade to electronic stuff and become more standardized, they can sync that up. So if I open mine up now, it, it's actually in a, in a much more readable version. I right. can see my health record for everything from Cedars, from, uh, you know, prescriptions to diagnosis to test results and things like that. That's pretty wild. Um, and, you know, there's, there's not that many yet. I think there's about 20 or 25 hospital systems across the country that are part of it. But those can all contribute to your single record. So it's it's complicated and it's going to take a long time. And obviously, yeah. I think those first twenty twenty five are going to be the easy part. But but you know, the question is is how do we get the other ninety percent on on board and get those moving along from financial incentives to to internal bureaucracy? It's 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 going to be a tough one. But I can I, I can already personally start to see the benefits of things like that. Yeah, and there was a really interesting recent article by David Bates in JAMA uh, that released last week saying something roughly along those lines, that we've got a huge number of you know, apps on mobile phones and wearable technology, but they don't always interact with some of these core systems. So you might have something great on your phone, but sure. it doesn't really interact with that system. And we really need to build some real standards in the APIs right. to say, how can we build into that? So actually that information can be exchanged, but also held in multiple different forms. And I think we're getting there. You know, We are building some of these te- technologies and these tools it's a few years still. And I think you were really right, Quinn, when you said it is quite a mindset change mm-hmm. uh, because you really have to go back to that fundamental where traditionally you come to me as a doctor for advice, but actually there's no reason why you can't have that advice on your phone and interact mm-hmm. with it and be in control of it and more empowered to do what you need to do versus always coming to somebody else for that decision. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm curious, side notes, I have a, one of my best friends here works in a, a pretty rural but pretty excellent research hospital um, and is is heavily on sort of the analytics front, a little closer to, I think, what Maxine does. He's definitely not a doctor. And, and you know, he is tasked a little bit with dealing with one of America's most systemic uh, medical system issues, which is too many people come to the emergency room and that's the only time they go to the doctor. And so his, uh, he is trying to work through data and analytics and, and processes to see uh, sort of a testing ground because it's in a very rural place where people are overweight and they smoke and they don't take their medication. You know, how do we get people to stop going to the emergency room the only time? You know, where does that start? Where does that begin? Because the emergency room is so costly and, it, and we pay for it every time. And that's part of this, what's bankrupting our system. It's necessary. It's important, but people need to go to their doctors and take their medications and yada yada. I'm I'm curious. Aside from your multiple logins you have for a lot of different things, or a very slow technology, which I imagine is even worse when you get further out from London. What are the other sort of systemic things that you guys are still dealing with on that front? I'd say, or you could just be done with them. Yeah, I would say there are some systemic things, but actually there's a huge amount that's actually changing. So if you think about things like getting a prescription, you know, traditionally you went to go and see your doctor for, we're talking about a repeat prescription here versus an acute one for for a short need. Now we have a system called the electronic prescription service where you can either on your mobile phone or through a, a deal with your GP get those prescriptions sent to the pharmacy of your choice. So you never really have to go to somebody to see them it's actually it's done you get notified you get a text message or whatever it is that you choose to say 
hey guys, look, your prescription's ready, come pick it up whenever you're ready to do so. And then the other thing I think we're really trying to do, Maxine mentioned the app that we've produced, um, is to give people that information in their hands. And one of the things we've had, we've had it for quite a number of years, is the NHS websites, the nhs.uk, which is a trusted source of content. It's got information in there that is verified, that is safe, it's secure. Um, It's a brilliant site. It has about 50 million hits per month. Um, oh, I thought it was 500 million. Oh, gosh. Oh, it, um, big lots. Maybe it's five. <laughs> we'll just go, we'll put lots in the we'll show notes. We'll just put millions. <laughs> lots um, and lots of visits. Yeah. And I think by giving that information, so to, one of the things it can help you do is say, you know, I'm a mum, you said, Quinn, you're a dad. In the middle of the night, your kid is sick. You've got the other kid in bed. You don't really want to wake up the kids and take them all to A&E for one kid. What you can do is actually go through this site and say, well, okay, this is what I can see. This is what I think it is. And at the end of it, it it's not an algorithm. It is just a sort of a helpful decision tool to say, where's the best right. place for you to go? And the best place for you to go might be the emergency department. But actually, the best place could also be um, your local pharmacy who can help you if your child has an ear infection, for example. But I think it's giving people the information in their own hands to to make those decisions. Yeah, I, I would I would just add to that in the sense that it, one of the obviously amazing things in the UK is that we have a system that's you know, free at the point of care. Um, but as a result, we see a huge amount of moral hazard. So moral hazard is um, when you don't face the cost to something, you overutilize a service. Um, when it comes to kind of prevention and the kind of stuff we were talking about earlier, like that's a good thing that if you're you know a little bit concerned about a mole, you go and see your 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 um your general practitioner um whereas i i can understand in a different system where you are severely out of pocket for every interaction you have with the healthcare system you will wait a long time until you you are really really concerned about that mole um but a, a lot of other health systems in the world will use payment or co-pays as a method by which to slightly dampen that overuse um but i would agree with indra that actually finding a mechanism by which to activate patients and individuals a bit more so that they are using appropriately, but cost is not the decision and the deciding factor for why they're going to use the service right. or not, but information is. And that's, I think, the most powerful thing. Well, let's get to where our listeners can take some action. As usual, um, it's either, uh, you know, uh, supporting various policy initiatives um, or uh, and or taking personal steps. So, what what are uh, the specific steps um, that uh, our listeners uh, can can do to move this enormous human effort along? Um, what what are the positive human benefits uh, that translate from from one system to another? Yeah, of all the incentives that you've seen, of all the obstacles you've seen, and again, it's a it's a very different system. But what are the things that you think we could push to our listeners? A lot of which are over there to really move these things towards the future. So I guess I've got a, a quite a UK-centric one and maybe more transferable one. Sure. Um, so a UK-centric one would be that uh, it, whilst it's fantastic that we have a national religion, which is the NHS, mm-hmm. that I would love citizens to be able to have a bit more information about how the system works in a way that they can understand and they can uh, internalise into their behaviours, just so that um, people's misunderstandings about how the system works, what happens with data, et cetera, are better founded. So for that, you know, it requires the NHS, the public, the media to all be sending more coherent messages. But I would love for people to 
not be concerned based on ill-founded fears, um, for example, about who is stealing your data. Um, mm-hmm. so that's one thing, um, to be a bit more critical about something we love so much. And the second one would be that, and this is a kind of personal gripe, that when it comes to health data, people get very, very anxious about what's happening with it, what can be inferred from it. Um, you know, if you have an STD, you know, you, you, all, this, all the data shows that you're unwilling to share that data of all the health information that, that ranks the lowest. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, if anyone has had the fear of an STD, they will have absolutely typed in the symptoms into Google. They've absolutely looked up where the nearest sexual health clinic is right. and what its opening times are. So I, I would just want to kind of raise that your your health data is significantly beyond just what's in your EPR, um, and that's a fact. And whether it's because you're directly inputting it to an organization like Google, or you can infer it based on what your mobile phone usage is, or where you live, or what you're eating, whatever it might be. So for everyone to have a bit of a broader understanding about what health data really is, because at the moment what people think health data is, is really just sick data. I love cool. that. Cool. Dang. Yeah. And I'm going to give you something slightly controversial, which is slightly off tangent of what we've been talking about. Please. But one of the things I really plead to people is let's bring a little bit of humanity back. We are all so pressured, so time sensitive that we've almost forgotten to care for one another. And we just need to bring that back. And digital is a great way to do that. You know, you can build online communities as well as real communities. But don't forget the real communities. And do that mm-hmm. wherever you live. It doesn't matter if you live here in the UK, you live in the States, or you live in China. Try and keep that community spirit alive because it's the people-powered change that will help relay knowledge, as Maxine is saying, but also help people care for themselves. I just feel so much in today's society, we've forgotten to care for one another. And we really need to agree. change that. You, I mean, you can apply so that. Beautiful. That was so beautiful. I know. It's the end of a really long day. <laughs> Brian, Brian is covered in tears here. It, Fine. It's Fine. just swimming in them. I, I love that. I, I, I so do think true. it's important. And, and I, I feel like sometimes America is is having an issue where our, our community has turned into tribalism and is going uh, on the on the negative side of that front a little bit. But it it does matter and it, it does mean so much and, and has in the past affected so much positive change. And we can... We can do that again. Um, okay, last couple questions, and then you're out of here. Super fast. When was the uh, each of you? When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? These are the questions we ask everybody. Uh, when I was four and a half, I was in nursery. I had a friend who had significant hearing difficulties, but she hadn't been diagnosed as deaf. Mm-hmm. And my dad happens to be a doctor who specializes in ears. And I remember going home and saying to my dad, you know, I can't remember what her name now is. Let's call her Claire. Claire's having sure. real trouble hearing because she never plays with me when I say something on one side compared to the other. And my mm. dad was like, she needs to go and see a doctor. She needs to get her hearing Gosh. tested. And I knew That's... at that point, I was only four and a half, but I was like, damn, man, I want to be a doctor and really make some changes. Wow. Oh, that is awesome. Well, Maxine, good luck. <laughs> so I guess I don't have one that I can actually remember, but... When, when I was being up. born, <laughs> when I was being born, just my head was out. And apparently I was such a gannet and such a piggy baby that already with just my head out, I started sucking on the inside of my mum's thigh because I was so hungry. <laughs> oh. Apparently the whole room just my erupted God. with laughter. And so at that point, I guess I realized that hopefully I can bring joy to people, mostly through the medium of food. Those answers are so similar. That's so weird. Uh, all right. Last one. 
Last one. If you could Amazon Prime one book to the President of the United States, what would it be? Mm-hmm. If you could send him one book, what would it be? God, that's so uh-huh. difficult. We, by the would way, you your answer will... It, he might. Well, we, we have a whole Amazon <laughs> wish list and our, our listeners go on there and they send them directly to the White House. We've gotten everything from have. coloring books to the Constitution. So Fine. L- L- Little Miss Bossy. Easy Little to read. Miss, He'll read it. Little Done. Miss Bossy. I hope it is pictures. <laughs> yeah. Most, mostly. <laughs> uh, and I'd say the Tao of Pooh and the Tay of Piglet. Maybe he just needs to let go a bit. See it in a bigger perspective. I love it. Excellent. That's, that's awesome. Uh, guys, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Or would you rather not be found? <laughs> <laughs> we can be found at onehealthtech.com. Okay. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Or uh, on, on the Twitter sphere at Maxi underscore Mackie. What are you, at Indra Joshi? Ten. No. Yeah. Ten. Indra Joshi. Ten. It's ten of you. There's wow. like nine before me. There's probably 12 after me. <laughs> You're number 10? I'm number 10. Perfect. Okay. So everybody look for the 10th one on the internet. <laughs> You're great. Uh, guys, I know you got to run. Thank you hey, so thank much. Thank you so much for your time this evening, tonight. I have no idea what time it is there. You're great. This has been awesome too. I want to yeah. do a bit of American love. Guys, this has been great. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should have totally done this whole thing in an American accent. I was thinking about doing the whole thing in a British accent. Oh. <laughs> no fucking way! Next time. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. Next time. We're going to keep up once you guys have turned us into robots. We're going to catch back up. All right. Later. Be it's been so rad. It's been so rad. All right. Wow. Now, you're, now they're just mocking just us. so mean. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. We should go. Right. We Thank should you. go. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks to our incredible guests today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.